Welcome back to The Shaping of the Modern World. I'm Stephen Remy. I'm a professor of history at Brooklyn College of the City University of New York. This podcast series supports my course, The Shaping of the Modern World. Today, we begin at the bottom of the earth, in Antarctica. Last January marked the probable 200th anniversary of the discovery of Antarctica. In 1820, a German-born explorer for the Russian Imperial Navy and his crew may have been the first people to see part of the continent. There is also an oral tradition among Polynesian people of Rarotonga Island in the South Pacific that one or more Polynesian sailors were the first humans to lay eyes on it. Antarctica is an ice-covered continent. At 5.4 million square miles, it's the fifth largest continent on Earth. It's also the single largest mass of ice on Earth, the second being the Greenland Ice Sheet. The Greenland Ice Sheet covers nearly all of Greenland, which is located between the Arctic and Atlantic Oceans, and is the world's largest island. Both ice sheets are shrinking. A study published recently in the journal Science revealed that melting ice from Antarctica and Greenland alone accounted for 14 millimeters, or just over one half inch, of sea level rise globally. That's almost one third of the total of the world's total sea level rise between 2003 and 2019. In reporting on these findings, the website earthsky.org described the quantity of ice lost this way. Greenland's ice sheet lost an average of 200 gigatons of ice per year, and Antarctica's ice sheet lost an average of 118 gigatons of ice per year. If that sounds like a lot of ice, it is. One gigaton of ice is enough to fill 400,000 Olympic-sized swimming pools or cover Central Park with a layer of ice more than a thousand feet thick. That's higher than the Chrysler building. And that's just one gigaton. The cause of the melting is warmer ocean temperatures, part of the larger process of warming temperatures worldwide described by the climate scientist James Hansen in his TED Talk. Two things must be stressed. One, human-generated climate change is real. It is not a hoax. As Hansen points out, the science is clear. Human activity has changed and is changing the climate. Second, a changing climate is altering every aspect of human society. So what can the study of history contribute to our understanding of climate change and humanity? Not that long ago, historians would have considered climate change an issue for scientists like Hansen or for environmental activists. We did not often write about the history of the longer term impact of humans on the environment and vice versa. To be sure, historians did write about singular events, usually disasters like pandemics or famines or earthquakes or erupting volcanoes. But we did not have much to say about the social, political, economic and military consequences of changing environmental conditions, whether those changes were human-generated or not. It was as if the physical environment and humanity were separate entities, and so were studied in isolation from each other. Fortunately, this is no longer the case. Historians are now approaching seemingly familiar historical subjects in new ways. 
Let me give you one good example of how historians now pay very close attention to the deeply intertwined history of nature and human activity, and not only since the Industrial Revolution. We began this course with a survey of the world right before the early modern period. And I pointed out that humanity existed within the constraints of what historians call the biological old regime and climate changes until around the mid 18th century. It was at that point that a combination of resources extracted from the so-called new world, along with the first industrial revolution, allowed humanity to break from these constraints. In turn, human activity altered the environment to the point where some scientists and historians now argue we live in a distinct geological period, the Anthropocene, or the age of the human. The larger point is that once we recognize the interconnectedness of the natural and human worlds, the past and present started looking pretty different than what we had thought. For example, in 2013, the historian Jeffrey Parker proposed a new way of looking at what historians call the global crisis of the 1600s, a century when human populations around the world declined amid proliferating wars and famines. Parker argued that cooling global temperatures, known as the Little Ice Age, played a critical role in generating and prolonging conflicts. Beginning around the mid-16th century, global average temperatures dropped. This general cooling trend was accompanied by periods of drought. The result was a disaster for human communities around the world in the 17th century. Southern China was hit by the worst drought it had experienced in 500 years, while Northern China in the 1640s experienced its two coldest years in a thousand years. One of the results being the overthrow of the ruling dynasty, the Ming, in 1644. Russia and Ukraine were also subjected to waves of drought and extreme cold. In France, cold weather contributed to the outbreak of what would be the single largest popular revolt of the century. In the Eastern Mediterranean, then ruled by the Ottoman Empire, excessive rainfall destroyed harvests from 1640 to 1642. A drought in East Africa prevented the Nile from flooding, which disrupted networks providing food to the empire and making populations vulnerable to the plague. In the Western Mediterranean, which was ruled by Spain, drought was followed by excessive rainfall and produced conditions that almost led to the collapse of Spain's European empire. In West Africa, a combination of drought, colder temperatures and famines actually led to a period in which the Sahara Desert expanded southward for some 200 years. The impact on human communities became an important factor in the transatlantic slave trade. Southeast Asia was also hit by a massive drought lasting from the 1640s to the 1660s. Now, both climatologists and historians knew that the Little Ice Age existed, and historians have long known that the 17th century was a pretty horrible century for many people around the world. But Jeffrey Parker was the first to argue for a causal connection between climate change and massive disruptions to human communities. 
And the writer and activist Naomi Klein gives us other examples from the very recent past and the contemporary world. I asked you to read the text of a lecture she gave in 2016 in honor of the late Edward Said. Said, as you may know, was an influential American-Palestinian scholar who popularized the term Orientalism to describe how Western scholars characterized non-Western peoples, most notably Muslims, in a way that supported the aims of imperialism. Naomi Klein makes the point that in some ways, Said was like most scholars of his generation. He didn't link the fate of human communities and climate change in his scholarship. Indeed, as Klein notes, Said once dismissed environmentalism as the indulgence of spoiled tree huggers who lack a proper cause. Why does Klein insist that an appreciation for environmental degradation is essential to understanding the politics, economics, and diplomacy of the Middle East? And what does she mean by the term green colonialism? Both the scientist James Hansen and the activist Naomi Klein come to the same conclusion. The modern world as it was shaped in the period covered in this course is unsustainable. But that's not the same thing as saying it is doomed to some form of apocalyptic destruction. A different future is possible. And making a different future requires, among other things, thinking differently about the past. We cannot change what has already happened, but we can always ask new questions. And one of the points I've tried to make in this course is that the questions we ask about the past are informed by our present concerns. And there is no greater present concern than protecting and repairing our only shared home. Thanks for listening. Be well and take care of each other.